0: You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok
1: Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome back to Teller from Jerusalem. Welcome, rookie listeners, and welcome to veterans to the podcast, where we do not just merely teach, but we also touch. We resume our schedule of our podcast regarding the early struggle to build the state of Israel. And here's a reminder of our upcoming schedule for the summer of 2023 until our recess. Our regular schedule will be maintained until August 2nd with our second installment of Regarding Shaming Others, and then after we'll commence our summer break and we'll only resume on October 18. So let's get back to work. In our previous episode, in the series about the birth of Israel, we detailed the reaction in the United Na- to the United Nations partition vote on November 29th. 1947. Historians will surely attach a lot of significance to the fact that the plan for partition of Palestine came up not long after the partition of India, which was a very bloody affair, as partitionist thinking was common in imperialist and colonial British Empire. Of course, the great irony is that so much thought is devoted to the partition plan in Israel, and certainly at TFJ we've awarded plenty of attention, but in fact, ay yeah, ay, it never, ever happens. In other words, partition, or partitionist thinking, is a desperate attempt to achieve something that really cannot be resolved, a mode of squaring the circle. In the navigation of what author Penny Sinanoglu, I hope I pronounced that correctly, called a fairly impossible situation. For the Zionists, the partition plan was the starting point, and no one believed that it was the ending point as the map is unrealistic and absurd. From the Arab position, it was not a starting point, but rather a non-starter. Again, quoting Penny Sanagulu, The significance of the partition plan is that it delineates a point from which both sides can begin their struggle. So now we segue to the historical analysis of the historical facts of what already occurred. After feverish activity, Israel managed to secure a two-thirds majority in the UN, which meant, finally, there was official sanction to establish a Jewish state in the Jewish ancestral homeland. Hence the abundance of Khoftep November, 29th of November streets in virtually every Israeli city.
2: The partition plan was so significant to the Jewish people that cities throughout Israel have named streets after the date. Kaftep November, the 29th of November street like this one here in Jerusalem.
1: The reaction to the United Nations General Assembly adoption of Resolution 181, also known as the Partition Resolution, that would divide Great Britain's former Palestinian mandate into Jewish and Arab states in May 1948 was unbridled jubilation in Israel and throughout the Jewish world. In the shadow of the Holocaust, this was the greatest consolation. Even in the United Nations, the announcement of the vote erupted in thunderous applause in a body that for decades has been known to be anything but Israel-supportive. For the listeners wishing to hear that very atypical, non-protocolish and non decorumish reaction in the UN, you're invited to listen to Teller from Jerusalem, Season 2, Episode 26. Every Teller from Jerusalem episode is meant to stand alone and does not require the listening of previous episodes in order to comprehend the current discussion. But to bring you up to speed as to what had happened and what lay in store, here is British Movie Tone News.
0: At Flushing, Long Island, the General Assembly of the United Nations has made its decision on Palestine. The map shows what partition means. The Jewish state colored light, the Arab state dark, Jaffa to go to the Arabs, Jerusalem internationalized. There was heated debate in the assembly. This is the delegate from Saudi Arabia arguing against partition. Then Senor Arana of Brazil, presiding, calls on the nations to vote and announces how they vote. Saudi
3: Arabia? No. Soviet Union? Yes. United Kingdom? Abstain. The United States? Yes.
0: The resolution of the Duck Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. And this was the scene next day in Jerusalem. The Jewish people at once began to celebrate the United Nations' decision. If they hadn't got all they wanted, they had at least gained the verdict for the setting up of a new Jewish state and their rejoicing was obviously a spontaneous affair. Such was the immediate Jewish reaction in Jerusalem, and it was the same in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. The Arab reaction was to follow. Two days later, this was the typical scene. Arabs advancing on the center of Jerusalem at the beginning of a three-day strike and an orgy of wrecking, looting and bloodshed. Isolated police were more or less powerless to deal with the riot, which, beginning as a demonstration, quickly led to the burning of Jewish shops and the general destruction of Jewish property. During this time, fighting between Arabs and Jews was a commonplace occurrence and there were many casualties on both sides through stabbing and shooting. And arrests were made on both sides. Here are some Jews being taken into custody after a rooftop chase. Grenades and revolvers were freely used by the rioters. Fires were soon blazing in many places throughout Jerusalem. The burning of the wrecked cinema is typical. The implementing of the United Nations decision is the big query. Meanwhile, Britain announces the ending of her mandate next May.
1: But the response to this historic vote among Jews was way different than it was in the Arab states. In the UN, all Arab countries walked out and declared the vote illegal. In Palestine, the partition plan vote was flatly rejected by the Arabs, and just a few hours after the announcement, as Jews were still reveling, an Arab gang in Jaffa ambushed a Jewish bus, murdering five and wounding many others. That very same Arab gang continued north along the coast, and when they arrived at Khadaira, again opened up fire on a bus and murdered two more. As CBN reports.
2: They called it the partition plan. UN resolution 181 called for the establishment of a Jewish state and an Arab state in British controlled Palestine.
1: It represented the acknowledgement of the international community of the right of the Jewish people to establish a state. Also the right of the Arab people to establish a state in Palestine.
2: The plan set aside land in the Galilee, along the Mediterranean, and the Negev Desert for the Jewish people. The Arabs received all of biblical Judea and Samaria, later known as the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and other small portions. Perhaps the most controversial part of the plan was that an international body would control Jerusalem. Still, the Jewish people accepted the plan.
1: The Israelis didn't like it, because it didn't give them Jerusalem. And it didn't give them Eilat and, and all the southern Negev. But they, they accepted it because, OK, this was the best we can
2: get. Arabs, however, gave it a thumbs
1: down. They not just rejected it, but they waged a war, not just against the state of Israel, but against the UN resolution. This reaction of the Arab riders and street should not be misunderstood to be that of only the hotheads. That very week on December 1st, the Arab Higher Committee decided on a three-day strike to protest the creation of a Jewish state in a part of the world that the Arabs claimed the Jews had no right to. The next day, on December 2nd, a large gang from Jerusalem's old city marched the Jewish section of the city on Jaffa Street, where they torched stores, looted everything and injured whoever they could, leaving a wake of desolation in their path. Chaim Weizmann, the Russian board biochemist and father of synthetic acetone, who listeners of Teller from Jerusalem will remember had a seminal role in the Balfour Declaration and in getting Harry Truman to support the partition plan and would later serve as Israel's first president, summed up Israel's perilous situation to a Jewish group he was addressing in Atlantic City, New Jersey, thus, quote, A state is not given to a people on a silver platter. It was this metaphor, Magasha Kesseth, on a silver platter, that led to Natan Alderman's famous poem entitled, Silver Platter, portraying the difficulty and sacrifice entailed in establishing the state. Here's a rendition of the translation into English that was read on ILTV on Israel's Memorial Day two years ago.
4: A poem published in the Israeli Devar magazine in 1947, just as the war for independence was beginning to take its toll. Translated from its original in Hebrew, this is A Silver Platter by Natan Alterman. And the land grows still, the red eye of the sky slowly dimming over smoking frontiers as the nation arises, torn at the heart but breathing to receive its miracle, the only miracle as the ceremony draws near. It will rise, standing erect in the moonlight in terror and in joy, when across from it will step out a youth and a lass and who will slowly march towards the nation dressed in battle gear, dirty, shoes heavy with grime. They ascend the path quietly to change garb, to wipe their brow, they have not yet found time. Still bone weary from days and from nights in the field, full of endless fatigue and unrested, yet the dew of their youth is still seen on their head. Thus they stand at attention, giving no sign of life or death. Then a nation in tears and amazement will ask, who are you? And they will answer quietly, we are the silver platter on which the Jewish state was given. Thus they will say and fall back in shadows, And the rest will be told in the Chronicles of Israel. What
1: Chaim Weizmann meant by this metaphor, a state is not given to a people on a silver platter, was that the UN had made their decision, but they were not going to impose it upon the Arab world. The Jews of Palestine and her allies were going to have to fight in order to bring it about. There were three stages in the fight to bring about the state. A the civil war between the Jews and the Arabs in Palestine, running from November 30th, 1947, through May 14, 1948. The second stage was on May 14th itself, the day that the State of Israel was declared. There was nothing warlike in the Declaration, but this event was and continued to be very significant. And the third and decisive stage was fought in the morning after the Declaration, when the British troops had already departed from the mandate they had in Palestine. For a brief summary, we turn to the Kings and Generals series.
3: Tensions between Arab-Palestinian and Jewish communities in the British Mandate of Palestine had been increasing ever since the end of the First World War, heightened with broken imperial promises to both sides. This state of affairs finally exploded into civil war following the UN vote for a partition of Palestine into Jewish and Arab states on November 29, 1947, a solution which the Palestinians and the Arab League refused. As small scale skirmishes gradually escalated throughout late 1947 and early 1948, the Palestinian Arab group Arab Liberation Army proved incapable of defeating their better organised opponents. Due to the chaos, tens of thousands of Palestinian refugees fled into neighbouring Arab states, further inflaming the public of those countries to demand war. A full-scale conflict was prevented until May of 1948, as the area was still a British mandate, but this state of affairs was set to expire on the 15th. At 4pm on the afternoon of May 14, 1948, eight hours before British sovereignty dissolved, David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the establishment of the State of Israel becoming its first Prime Minister. That night, armies of five Arab nations surrounding Israel attacked the newly created state, starting the first Arab-Israeli war.
1: The Declaration of Israeli Independence was welcomed with jubilation and dancing all over Israel. But Ben-Gurion did not rejoice, along with the rest of Tel Aviv, nor did the revisionist leader Menachem Begin, for he, just like Ben-Gurion, understood very well that Lumda had honestly was not a silver platter. What would become Israel's first Prime Minister, Ben-Gurion, said, I feel no gaiety in me, only deep anxiety. As on the 29th of November, the day of the United Nations Partition Plan, when I was like a mourner at the feast. Interestingly, as Connor Cruz O'Brien points out, Echad the Jewish thinker, had used almost the same phrase about his own feelings amid the exaltation of the first Zionist Congress some 50 years before. Let's hear about the beginning of Israel's war for independence.
3: On the morning of the next day after the proclamation of the new country, the League of Arab States declared war. Five countries at once – Syria, Lebanon, Transjordan, Egypt and Iraq – attacked the newly born country. The army of Transjordan conquered Samaria, East Jerusalem and Judea. The Iraqi military reached Netanya. The Lebanese and Syrians took control of territories in northern Israel. Egyptian tanks were stationed 35 kilometers from Tel Aviv. It would seem that the situation was hopeless and soon the State of Israel, which existed for only a few days, would be wiped off the face of the earth. Egypt possessed the most extensive military establishment in the region, which had also been supplied and trained by Britain. Their ground forces were organized into three infantry brigades, one tank brigade comprised of 50 tanks, and three artillery battalions armed with 65 howitzer artillery pieces. In the air, Egypt could field five squadrons of 18 fighting aircraft each and one transport squadron. The bulk of Iraqi ground forces were structured in three divisions, two infantry and one training division, supported by an armoured battalion of 15-20 tanks and 70-80 artillery pieces. The Iraqi Air Force consisted of 80 aircraft overall. In addition, the relatively elite Arab Legion of Transjordan supplied 4,500 well-trained British-led soldiers. 3,000 more came from Lebanon, 3,000 from Syria, and a token contingent from Saudi Arabia.
1: The Arabs had a huge initial superiority in terms of equipment and firepower, heavy weapons, armor and aircraft. The Arab chiefs of staff meeting in Damascus in April have worked out, on paper, a coordinated offensive. Syrian and Lebanese armies were to invade northern Palestine and occupy the northern cities of Tiberias, Saphid, and Nazareth. Yet the principal effort, Conor O'Brien points out, would be opened by the Iraqi army and the Arab Legion south of Lake Tiberias, or the Kinneret, moving west toward the port of Haifa. We might call this the lowest part of the north of Israel. This was the main objective in the opening phase of the campaign. The role of the Egyptians was to pin down Jewish forces south of Tel Aviv. For those lacking geographic familiarity, Syria and Lebanon are on the direct north of Israel, and they attacked from the north. Jordan and Iraq, and Iraq is not a direct neighbor, are on the east of Israel, so they attacked from the east. And Egypt, which is to the southwest of Israel, attacked from the south. Israel was under siege from five Arab countries attacking in three directions. To the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. The west would have been a land border. Israel surely would have been attacked from all four directions. Against overwhelming odds, the war ended in January of 1949, after about eight months when armistice negotiations began between the Jewish and the Egyptian side, bringing to an end a surprising and stunning Jewish victory in the war. In the three stages described earlier to bring about the state, stage A was fought while the British were in Palestine and responsible for policing and welfare. The British enforced a ban on Jews entering the country, resulting from the execrable white paper, as well as a ban on Jews acquiring weapons or manufacturing arms under the punishment of death. Where was Israel to acquire weapons to defend herself? There was a clandestine production of bullets and armaments in Israel done under the very noses of the British, but it was performed at great risk. It was neither the volume nor the dimension that Israel required. But Jewish innovation was quickly and busily at work, and we'll resume the story in our very next episode. Thank you all for listening. Please tell your friends and relatives to also tune in. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of Ul teleproducts, Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget. You can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.